Well, like I was saying, Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be tonight as we continue our study. And while you are finding Acts chapter 12, can I ask you a question? It's kind of an odd question. It's kind of out of left field. You might not have been thinking about this tonight, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. What is your opinion of angels? Have you thought about angels much in your life? What, what, what do you think about angels? They are mentioned on a fairly regular basis in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We've already encountered some work of angels already in the book of Acts, but what do you think about them? You don't need to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to raise your hand with this, but um, any of you ever feel like you've seen an angel or interacted with one in your life? You know, there's a pastor by the name of John Boston and he tells about a time that he thought he saw an angel. He was driving down the road, and, and on this particular day, a, a car in the oncoming lane crossed over the center median, and he swerved to miss this oncoming car, and that swerving ran him head into a, a big electrical pole. And that thing came crashing down on top of his car, and it was still live, and a lot of electricity, and his car caught on fire. And the way he tells the story, he was trapped in his car, it was crushed, his seatbelt was stuck, the door wouldn't open, and he thought he was going to burn to death right there in the car. He said, that's when a scruffy-looking stranger just walked up out of nowhere, easily pulled the door open, pulled him from the car, walked him 20 feet away as his car completely was engulfed in flames. And the man said, hi, my name is Johnny. The police are on their way. I can't be here when they arrive, but you're going to be okay. And then the man was gone. And then he tried to explain this to people, what had happened to him and how he got out of the car. And he said that a lot of people have tried to rationalize that whole situation and, and say, well, you know, you got out, you just don't remember, circuit broke, whatever. But it was the fire department that said, but you know what? There are some aspects of this whole thing that defy logic. They defy reason and science, and we can't really understand how he got out of there. A lot of people have different ideas about what happened that day, but Pastor Boston is convinced that it was an angel who called himself Johnny that pulled him out of the car. What do you think about that? What do you, what do you think about stories like that? You acknowledge there's a lot of stories like that one, right? Have you ever heard of the butterfly people? No, I'm not tapping into something that you guys did in the 60s. I'm talking about something else. <laughs> so those of you that were there are laughing. Those of you that weren't, don't, they're like, what? <laughs> anyway, I wasn't there for the record. <laughs> yeah, peace, brother. I see you back there. <laughs> but have you heard of the butterfly people? Um, I'm referring to something that happened back in 2011 in Joplin, Missouri, when that, that F5 tornado came through the city. And it was one of the most devastating tornadoes in history. It was a mile-wide um, tornado that, that just devastated parts of Joplin. It killed about 160 people. I have personal friends who were in that tornado that have, uh, uh, that have heroic stories of survival on, on that day. But as the community was digging its way out from underneath the rubble, there was these stories that began to circulate, many of them from children who had survived the tornado that kept referencing butterfly people um, that were present during this tornado. 
um, there was a story about two cousins, uh, Lane Grisby and Mason Lillard. They both claimed to have seen what they're referring to as butterfly people during the storm. See, Grisby and Lillard, they were in their grandparents' truck when the tornado hit, and the tornado uh, tossed this truck 300 uh, feet um, through a parking lot, and it was in 200-mile-an-hour winds, and, and uh, Grisby was thrown from the vehicle, and Lillard was pinned inside, and they both claimed to have seen something when that was all happening. It was people with wings. According to a story published about them in the Joplin Globe, they told their story. Lillard said that there was this hand that reached down and touched her shoulder after the tornado went through. She thought it was her cousin, but then she realized her cousin wasn't there because he had been thrown from the vehicle. And um, she says that when she looked up, she saw what would be described as butterfly people. One with brown hair, one with blonde hair. And she said it was just pretty calming. But those cousins, they weren't the only ones from the Joplin tornado that said that they were touched by people with wings. There's the St. Louis Dispatch carried a story about a mother who was running from shelter for shelter with her with her daughter, and that's when the tornado was barreling down on them, and the tornado had picked up a car, and the car looked like it was coming right at them. And this mother says she cradled her daughter just because she knew the car was going to crush them. But then it didn't, and her daughter said, Mom, didn't you see the butterfly people? And she went on to tell her mother that she saw lots of butterfly people carrying people through the sky. Are these encounters with angels? I have no idea. I don't know if we'll ever really know for sure, but what we do know for sure is this, that the Bible speaks a lot about angels. And in Hebrews chapter 13, we get this little lesson about angels. Do you remember what it says there? Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul is instructing the church and he says, Keep on loving, brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Without knowing it. Acts chapter 12 has an account of one of the most remarkable, angelic encounters that you're going to read about in Scripture. Peter, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, who now in the book of Acts is a church leader in the church in Jerusalem, he is thrown into prison. He is likely to be executed within the next 24 hours. But in the middle of the night, we read in Acts 12 that there was this angel that showed up in the prison cell where Peter was and bust him out. It's a great story we're going to read today. today. Acts chapter 12 is like this incredible chapter um, in Acts. It kind of stands alone all by itself. It's kind of it's sandwiched between multiple things happening all at once, but we have this Acts chapter 12 encounter that can just kind of stand all by itself that really teaches us something tonight. It's going to about God's protection. It's going to teach us something about God's sovereignty. And it's going to show us something about the prayers of a, of a, of a church family and what those prayers can do. So it starts like this. If you've got Acts chapter 12 verse 1, this is how it begins. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. 
When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, let's stop right there, and I want to go back and look at verse 1 because it starts off like this. It was about that time. It was about this time. Well, what time is Luke referring to when he's writing this account of the early church? Well, you might recall from last week's message, if you're here, Acts 10, Acts chapter 11, there was a very significant thing that happened in those two chapters. Do you recall what it was? Cornelius receives Christ. He is baptized. He receives the Holy Spirit. Why is that significant? Because he is the first person outside of the Jewish community to receive Christ. And it was this big revelation that the Holy Spirit is for who? It's available to everyone. And, and, and Peter makes, this, um, makes this, this, or this epiphany comes to Peter during those two chapters. Do you remember what it was? He said, now I realize that God does not show favoritism, but he welcomes anybody who fears him and does what is right. And this was brand new information. So after Cornelius and his family receives Christ, we read that the good news continues to spread, and we learn that it expands to some Greeks who were living in Antioch, that they were turning to Christ. So now it's not just this fluke thing with Cornelius. No, now we've got Greeks that are receiving Jesus, and, and this thing is growing again like it was before. In other words, more and more Gentiles were coming to receive the Holy Spirit. And when news reached the church leaders in Jerusalem that more and more Gentiles were coming to know Christ, they say, hey, Barnabas, remember him? He showed up in our story last week. Barnabas, we want you to go to Antioch, and we want you to check this out. Barnabas is the right guy for this job. He was the one who said, hey, let's listen to what God is doing in Saul's life. Barnabas just kind of has this attitude. We read it about in Scripture. He's like, come one, come all, Jesus for everybody. It makes sense why Barnabas would go to Antioch and check this out. So he goes there, and he is, he's like overjoyed that all these Gentiles are becoming Christians, and that this church is starting there. So the next thing we learn in Scripture, Barnabas heads off to Tarsus, and he's going to go get Saul, because Saul has gone off to Tarsus. And, and, and he brings him back to Antioch, and Barnabas and Saul, they stay in Antioch, for about a year. They evangelize, they build this church, they teach the Christians there, and they enjoy the beginnings of what will be a very fruitful ministry we'll read through all about in the New Testament. And it was in Antioch that we learned this little detail about the church. We find it in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It says this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is the first reference to that word, Christians, in the Bible. So they've been called the way, they've been called followers, they've probably been called all kinds of things. But it's almost like the church now, these people, they've got an identity. They are Christians. And that started in a Gentile city, Antioch. And that title has stayed with us now all of these years. There's a reason why we are called New Life Christian Church. It started way back here. 
So as Acts chapter 12 begins, it was about this time. So most likely when all that is happening in Antioch and Barnabas is there and he's going to get Saul and they're ministering there, while all of that is happening, this is what's happening back in Jerusalem. King Herod begins to persecute the church. Remember, they were kind of in a season of peace after Saul became a Christian. Well, Herod's about to ramp it up again, and he's about to pick up where Saul left off, and he's going to persecute the church. Now, a couple things about Herod, because it can be a little bit confusing. This is not the same King Herod that we are introduced to back in the Gospels when Jesus was born. Do you remember that King Herod? He was the one that ordered the death of all the little boys in Bethlehem under the age of two because when the wise men said, we've come to worship the king, and he was afraid that a new king would come and take his place. I mean, Herod was an awful, awful person. He is known as Herod the Great. Now, the Herod in Acts chapter 12 is his grandson. His name is Herod Agrippa. And it can get a little confusing because there's multiple Herods in the New Testament. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa. And like his, his grandfather, Herod Agrippa is pretty much a horrible man. Don't feel sorry for him for what's coming. He is a horrible man. Herod has James arrested and he immediately puts him to death. So James, one of Jesus' original disciples, is the first of the 12 to die for his faith. You're going to start to see some of the disciples fall off here. So he's the one that dies. This is James, the brother of John. John was also one of the 12 disciples, and and John was the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the book that we studied right before Acts. So this is John's brother. And I find it ironic that these sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, as they're known in the Bible, James would be the first to go John would be the last. They're separated by quite some distance. So James' death was such a welcomed event for the Jews in Jerusalem, and and it pleased them so greatly, which kind of gives us an idea of the political and the religious culture in Jerusalem at that time. They were thrilled that one of Jesus' disciples was put to death, that King Herod was motivated by this to do it again. Not only did, did, did this please the people, but he's like, I'm going to go and get a bigger fish now. And it feels very politically motivated as we read about it in Acts. Herod saw that he could win favor with the Jewish population by persecuting Christians. And perhaps he was thinking, if I can destroy the one thing that the Jews hate the most, which is these Christians, then they will love me forever and they will do whatever I want. So this is very politically motivated, and so he goes after Peter, finds him, arrests him, puts him in jail. I say Peter's a bigger fish just because we know more about him. He's a powerful evangelist. He was the spokesman on the day of Pentecost. He is the one that's speaking for the church at this point. He is, by all accounts, the leader of the church. So he's going after the top man in the whole thing. Now, I can only speculate why Peter was so heavily guarded. What does the Bible say? He was guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's 16 soldiers. We're going to read in a couple verses that he was chained to two of them. There's no escape for him. Maybe he's so heavily guarded because, let's be honest, Peter kind of had a knack for walking out of prisons unexplained. You might remember Acts chapter 5, he had an angelic visitor in prison and he walked right out. 
Maybe he's got a reputation. And Herod's like, I'm not taking any chances. Sixteen armed soldiers, chained to two of them. That's his predicament. But then there's just one little detail at the end of the section of Scripture we just read. Maybe it stuck out to you. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I want you to remember something tonight. You can never underestimate the power of a praying church. You can never underestimate what God can do when his people pray. Now, there's a little interesting side note that I want to point you towards because it means something to me and it kind of makes sense and I'm going to do my best to help you make sense of it as well. Peter, obviously, you know this, I've already said, he's going to escape from prison and as an angelic visitor. Peter's going to go, out, go on to have a very fruitful ministry, even though he kind of drops off the map here in the book of Acts. This is about all we know from Peter. This is about it. He'll show up one more time in Acts chapter 15, but it's a quick blurb, and then we're off to Paul's ministry after that. But we know that Peter goes on and has a very successful ministry. Other parts of the Bible say he traveled with his wife and they planted churches. And, but he writes two of the books of the New Testament, 1 and 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he quotes King David from a psalm. And he applies it to what he's trying to say. And it makes me wonder, why was this on Peter's mind all these years later? Now, this is what he said, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. It'll be on the screen behind me. He said, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'm wondering, I don't have any proof, but I'm wondering if the events that we're reading about in Acts chapter 12 that he personally lived through, being in prison and the church praying for him and all of that, I wonder if this Acts 12 experience was on his mind when he recalled the words of David later, and he wrote them down in 1 Peter chapter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, the ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't know if there's a connection between Acts 12 and 1 Peter 3, but Peter is about to get a lesson in just how true these words are. Look at verse 6. Here's what happens next. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. When the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. That is absolutely a remarkable story. I mean, uh, your neighbor may not realize that, so I need you to turn and tell him real quick. That is a remarkable story. Go ahead and tell him because that, that is remarkable right there. An angel showing up in the middle of the night, 
There was so much light illuminating off of this angel that it it lit up the entire jail cell. Chains fall off of Peter's wrist. Doors open by themselves. He didn't even use the force to do it. It just opened all by itself. And he walked right out. This is an amazing example of God's protection. And I think maybe it's something Peter was thinking about years later when he said, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He had to have been thinking, I can tell you about so many times when the eyes were on the righteous and he protected them. I tend to say it like this, and you probably heard me say it before, nothing escapes God's notice. That's kind of my way of saying God sees everything. His eyes are everywhere. Nothing escapes his notice. Peter says his eyes are on the righteous. God sees everything everything. But it also kind of raises a question though. Right here in Acts 12, it really kind of raises a very important question. And many have have wondered about this. And and maybe this is a question that crossed your mind while we were reading the text together tonight. The question is this, why was James allowed to die, but Peter was allowed to live? Did that question cross your mind? It's crossed a lot of people's minds. Why did God rescue Peter, but not James as well? I mean, James' death was very close to Peter's imprisonment. So why why did he just rescue both of them? After all, you can make the argument, both were dedicated to the ministry of the Lord. Both were faithful. Both were prominent in the church. Both led many people to Christ. Why? You know, these are the types of questions that often come up in our minds today when we struggle to see and to understand what God is doing. I don't know about you, I I sometimes have a hard time seeing God's master plan. I know he's got one. I can think of numerous times and I can think of many circumstances when I wonder about questions like, God, why didn't you stop that? Or, God, why don't you do something about this? You're all powerful, and I know you can do anything, but I don't understand why you would allow that illness or you allow that horrific turn of events or why why you didn't just supernaturally snap your finger and change all that. Do you ask questions like that? I do. I got news just this morning that I went to Ozark Christian College and one of their students who was working for Christ in Youth over the summer, um, he and his team were traveling to, from one Christ in Youth conference to the next one. And they were rear-ended by a semi-truck, and he died. And of course, there's, I mean, this young man is connected to a lot of people I know. And, and it makes you ask the questions. God, you could have stopped that. You could have hit the brakes on that truck. You could have swerved it one way. This kid just finished his freshman year of Bible college, and, and he was so in love with you, and he was going to dedicate his life to you. You know, these questions come up. Kind of along the lines of, well, well, why didn't you rescue James too? I've been fairly open with you all about my, what my father is going through. For those of you who don't know, my father right now has a, just a horrible, incurable neurological disease that has just ravaged his body and 
it's taken all the quality of life away from him. And, and uh, I, I sometimes wonder, I'm just being transparent with you. Lord, he has served you for 50 years in the ministry since he was a teenager. And now he can't do anything. He can't walk. He can't, he can't feed himself. He can't do a thousand of the things that we do every day and take for granted. Um, I drive to Joplin one to two times a week to go spend time with him, and he's kind of to the point now where he can't talk anymore, and so I do all the talking, <laughs> which is not that hard, I guess. <laughs> so he does a lot more listening, I do a lot more talking. It would be really easy for me to ask the question, God, why are you allowing this? Have you been there? Have you also asked the other questions? Why not someone else? Why not a murderer? They're deserving of this, not him. How about a child abuser? Yeah, that makes more sense. Why not some scumbag? Not my dad. Not who's someone who served you his whole life. These questions do pop into my mind from time to time. But I'm learning to be content that it is simply the sovereign will of God. That's what I'm learning. Somehow, some way, all of this is part of God's master plan that he is doing in all of our lives. And I'm learning to be okay knowing that there are things going on with my dad that God has chosen not to reveal to me or anybody else in our family, and he may never reveal them on this side of heaven. So, I just have to trust the Lord. That, that's kind of where we're landing as a family. Believe it or not, Acts chapter 12 helps me with that. Because Acts chapter 12 reminds me that God is in control. And this is how it reminds me of it. Just think about it. God allowed King Herod to kill James, but he kept him from killing Peter. Which means that it was the throne in heaven that was in control, not the throne on earth. And that's still a fact to this day. And I think that that is a good reminder for many of us in this room today to remember that no matter how difficult trials come, no matter how hard and disappointing the news we may receive, God is still on his throne and everything is still under his control and under his watchful eye. And we may not understand all the things that God is doing, but we trust that in his sovereign will, he knows what's best for us. And these are lessons that Acts 12 helps me learn to know and continue to be reminded of. Somehow, some way, I think Peter knew this because what is he doing the night before he's probably going to be executed? He is sound asleep. Would you be sound asleep the night before your execution? I wouldn't be. Peter's facing this real possibility that this is his last night on earth, and, and he is sleeping, and it's a deep sleep because the angel kind of had to kick him to wake him up. 
It wasn't like he wasn't just dozed off. He was sound asleep. There are some who have argued that Peter could, could sleep so soundly because in his mind, he knew without a shadow of a doubt that there's no way that he would die in that prison. He's like, well, how would he know that? Some have argued that he probably remembered the words of Jesus right after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Maybe you recall them. It's found in John 21. And Jesus said to him in verse 18, he said, Peter, very truly I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, now I know old is a relative term. Old is subjective. But Jesus said, when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Some have argued that Peter knew because of what Jesus told him. He wasn't old enough to die. This was not his moment. So he could sleep soundly because he knew this was just a temporary holding cell for him. Now, I don't know if that is true or not. I don't know. I mean, what Jesus said is true. I don't know if the argument is true that Peter knew that he wasn't going to die. But either way, he had peace. I think perhaps it has something more to do with the fact that uh, the church was earnestly praying for him. Have you ever had so much peace and then you find out later that people were praying for you and you're like, that's why. I knew everything was going to be okay. And I think there's a lot of that happening with, with, with Peter. And so he doesn't dismiss this fact later when he writes his letters to the church. When he said, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their prayers. God's ears are attentive to their prayers. Do you think later he connected the dots? Those people were praying for me for days. God pays attention. God sees all, he hears all. And God's ears were finely tuned to the prayers of godly people that night. They were most likely praying for his safety. That makes sense. They were probably praying for his witness in jail. That makes sense. Obviously, they were praying for his release. I have no doubts that God answered many of those prayers that night with Peter's miraculous escape. And could it also be part of God's master plan was to encourage the church to pray, and then he sent the angel. God's doing all kinds of things around us that we'll never see, we'll never know this side of heaven. Now look at verse 12. Here's how the story continues. When, he had, when it had dawned on him, you know, when it dawned on him that he was released and he's a block away from the prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rada came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. I love that. She hears him. It's Peter. And she forgets to let him in. She's like, it's Peter at the door. She's that excited. Verse 15, catch this. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He said, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. Now, this is a different James. You might be thinking, James was just killed. That's James, the brother of John. This James is the half-brother of Jesus who became a Christian after the resurrection and became a prominent leader in the church of Jerusalem. We're going to catch up with him in two more chapters from now. James would go on to write 
the book of James, which is located in your New Testament. It's that James. So he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, and then he left for another place. Now look at verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion. Yeah, I would say so. Among the soldiers who had become, who had, uh, um, and wondered what had become of Peter, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Don't you find it just a little bit ironic that the church was earnestly praying for Peter, obviously praying for his release, and then when it happened, they didn't believe it? Do you find that just a little bit ironic? Here they are having their prayer time. Oh, Lord, please watch over Peter. Keep him safe. And, and, and if it's being your will, to free him. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Peter's at the door. You're crazy. We're praying about it. <laughs> and God, please watch over him constantly. Knock, knock, knock. No, Peter's really at the door. No, it can't be him. It's probably just his ghost or his angel. Or maybe he's already dead, but it's his ghost. I don't know. And so, Lord, no, Peter's at the door. Have you ever prayed for something and then surprised when God answered it. That's what's happening. Um, a number of years ago, my folks were living in Dallas, Texas, and they were trying to discern. They'd kind of reached a crossroads, and they were trying to discern, does God want us to stay in Dallas and continue on, or does God want us to do something else? And, um, and, uh, and my, my, my dad had retired. He was in his early 70s and was working with churches all over the country, had been in Dallas for a couple years doing this, and he was trying to decide. And so they, they went into the kitchen, and, and they started to pray about that very issue. God, please show us what you want us to do. And the way my dad tells this story, he says, during our prayer time, there was a knock at the door. So they stopped praying, and they went to the door, and when they opened it, they were greeted by a man that they had never seen before, and I kid you not, he says, hey, you guys have any thoughts about selling your place? Because um, if you do, I think I'd like to buy it. <laughs> My dad was like, well, that was fast. <laughs> and they, they sold it to this man, and they left Dallas. Have you ever prayed for something, and then you were surprised that God actually answered it. I think there's a little bit of that happening in our text here in Acts chapter 12. Obviously, they were overjoyed to learn that Peter was released. It doesn't say that God shook the walls of their house like he has done in other places, but you know the joy of the Lord certainly filled the place that night. Acts chapter 12 ends a little bit oddly. If you look at the last part of chapter 12, I'm going to take you down to verse 19, the last part of verse 19. It simply says this. So, you know, Peter's escaped from prison. He's off doing his thing now. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, what a name, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Look at verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. 
Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, this is still this is a second appearance of an angel in this one chapter. An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Remember, I said, don't feel sorry for him. All right. That's a bad way to go. That's a real bad way to go. King Herod, who persecuted the church, killed James, wanted to kill Peter, was struck down by one of God's angels. I wonder if it was the same angel that released Peter from prison. Now, wouldn't that be poetic justice? I don't know. I don't know if God draws names out of his angelic hat of who gets to do what, but I bet you there was a lot of people lining up for that Herod duty. I don't know for sure. My brain thinks weird things. Interesting, I want to point something out to you tonight. I know we're a little long on time, but the death of Herod isn't just recorded in the Bible. Did you know that? It is well recorded in history. There was a first century historian named Josephus. Have you ever heard of him before? First century historian. He was not a Christian, but he extensively wrote about um, the history of the Jews. And he wrote about the same period of time of Jewish history that encompassed some of the Gospels and some of the book of Acts. So he's a contemporary with Luke, and he's writing about, about many of the events that we read about in the Bible. In fact, Josephus names many of the same names we read about in the Bible, some of the same places and some of the name events. And the death of Herod is one of the things that he chose to write about because when the king dies, it's noteworthy to take a note about that in history. Josephus would write that Herod entered the theater on the second day of this uh, great feast in honor of Caesar. And so he writes about him going to the theater. I have stood in that theater in Caesarea. It's a fascinating place. It's interesting to connect places you have been to places the Bible talks about. That's why a Holy Land trip is awesome. I don't know if you guys would be interested in going to the Holy Lands maybe next year, but I'm thinking about putting together another trip if anybody's interested in going. We'd love to take 20 or 30 of you. That'd be an awesome thing. But so Josephus writes that, um, that he goes into this theater and he is wearing robes, a robe that's made of silver and he talks about its extravagant weaving and that the sun, the raised sun, hits this robe and it just reflects like this, like, like this glorious view. Now, now Luke just says that uh, he was wearing his royal robes, but Josephus tells us it was a pretty spectacular robe that he was wearing. And when the people saw this, this is what Josephus writes. His flatterers cried out, from uh, one from one place and another from another, though not good, not for his good, that he was a God, and they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. And Josephus says, Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious, uh, their impious flattery. Sounds a lot like Acts 12, doesn't it? He's describing the same event, but from a secular point of view. Josephus went on to write this, A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with a most violent intensity. 
He would also write, his pain became violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die soon. And then Josephus wrote about the next couple of days, how people, because it was law, they had to pray for and mourn and do all this public spectacle um, to try to appease whatever to heal Herod. And he wrote, Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not keep himself from weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly... For five days he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. That's a pretty remarkable account. The Bible and this first century secular historian writing about things, details all line up perfectly. I can tell you today, as a side note, the Bible is absolutely true, and there are many things, just like Josephus and his history of the Jewish people, that uh, verify the truthfulness and the accuracy of God's Word. But again, what did Peter later write? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attended to their prayer, and what's the last thing that he said? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Herod's not going to get away with how he treated James and Peter, and the church, and God saw to it that he had what was coming to him. And that's why Peter, that's why I think Acts 12 and 1 Peter 3 are somehow connected because of what Peter experienced. But verse 24, what's it say? The word of God continued to flourish and to spread. So God shut down Herod, and the word of God continued to spread and flourish. God's master plan was continuing to go forth. I want to give you three things real quick before we're done. I think Acts chapter 12 reminds us of these things, and I think it'll be encouragement to all of us. The first one is this. Acts 12 reminds us and encourages us with God's protection. God is always on the lookout for his church. The church is the bride of Christ, and the Lord is a good husband. He protects his bride, and we see this with this whole account in Acts chapter 12. God's protection is clear. I think Acts 12 also reminds us and encourages us of this today. God's sovereignty. Why did God allow James to die but rescue Peter? Because God has a master plan. And we don't always know that master plan, but we just need to trust in the Lord's plan. He had a reason for why James needed to depart when he did, and he had another reason for Peter's escapes. All of that, perhaps, was all a part of God's plan to shed more light on what God was going to do after the death of Herod, and it would glorify the Lord's purposes. But the Word of God continued to flourish. I think we all have things happening in our lives that we don't understand. But I promise you that God does understand. He understands every little detail of it, God is a very on-purpose God, and God's timing is always perfect. So our job as Christians is to have this posture of humility and trust in the Lord and to know that what he says in his word is true, that in all things God works together. For all things, God works for the good of all those who love him. That God is working for us. Acts 12 also reminds us and encourages today of this. God responds. God responds to the prayers of his church. The Bible says, this is Jesus' half-brother who says it, that the prayers of the righteous 
are powerful and effective. Friends, don't ever underestimate the power of a praying church and what God will do through our prayers.